The largest MK Ultra research project, this one directly related to brainwashing, was carried out at the university's psychiatric hospital, the Allen Memorial Institute. Located atop Mount Royal in a mansion with the eerie name of Ravenscrag, the Allen Memorial was once the most prestigious mental hospital in Canada. The unorthodox treatments of its director caught the attention of the CIA in the mid-50s. When we are looking for people in the clandestine service, we're looking for people who really think and live outside of the box, who are very autonomous, very creative, very energetic, very self-contained, people who are neither black nor white in their thinking, but can deal with the ambiguous gray areas of life. You're so from Twitter, and you um, are interested in, in this as like a part of a larger scope of research into, um, let's say, nefarious activities by the CIA, bioweapons, um, and just like all the bad shit they do to poison us, um, but are not personally affected. Um, so, um, when did you? first get into like reading specifically about the Plum Island stuff and like Lyme as a bioweapon? Um, I mean, it was really recently. I have not known about this stuff for very long, just in the last like few months. Word. And I think I saw on Twitter that you mentioned a book about it and you're talking about some of the congressional hearings. So, I mean, actually, this is something that even though I knew about in passing, since I was focused more on like the long-term sequelae or like long-term effects of post-viral and post-infectious illnesses and not the pathogens themselves as much, I didn't like do a ton of research. So I'd be like curious to just hear all like anything all the fascinating stuff about like plum island and all of that like i really am kind of starting from almost no knowledge besides that there is this facility near lyme connecticut um where they were experimenting with uh these diseases and maybe putting them into vectors um yeah so it, there was um, a congressman named Chris Smith from New Jersey. He's a representative. He's been there since 1980. He's been in office. And I think I found this video and I got the recommendation from him. 
Gentleman from New Jersey, Mr. Smith, is recognized. I thank my good friend, the distinguished ranking member, yielding. Mr. Speaker, for years, books and articles have been written suggesting that significant research had been done at U.S. government facilities, including Fort Detrick and Plum Island, to turn ticks and other insects into bioweapons. The interviews, combined with access to Dr. Berkdorfer's lab files, reveals that he and other bioweapons specialists stuffed ticks with pathogens to cause severe disability, disease, even death, to potential enemies. He was talking about how he read this book called Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons by Chris Newby. And it basically implied that Lyme was created like as uh, either like purposefully or accidentally created and leaked by the CIA um, near Lyme, Connecticut. And he said that he read this book and it was really interesting and the evidence is fairly convincing and they should investigate it. And I believe he added an amendment to the NDAA, like the the defense bill, but I know that it passed. So the inspector general has to investigate. I'm sure that they're not going to do a very thorough job, but they still have to investigate like where it came from and a few just a few questions about its origins. So there was that book. And then another book that I read for this, like relating to this is called Baseless. And that's about um, Fort Detrick. I know that Plum Island and Fort Detrick are separate, but they were part of like the same kind of program. Right. Okay. So where, where's Fort Detrick? Cause I have a rough idea of like where Plum Island was. It's in Maryland. Okay. So still part of that general, um, yeah. Cur- cursed mid Atlantic, um, region. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess like my very, very vague, understanding of like Plum Island was that a lot of people have pointed out that Lyme disease, like the actual spirochete, Borrelia, Burdorferi or whatever, didn't originate at Plum Island, but that they were seeding it through novel disease vectors, which really is like a major deal. Like, I mean, you have a spirochete that I think it needs vectors to spread. It's not like um, a respiratory virus where, you know, you just like cough and someone gets Lyme from you. It needs vectors. And so that they were like seeding it through ticks and that Lyme was, and I don't mean even chronic Lyme, but just acute Lyme was almost virtually unknown in human disease until, what was it, like the 80s or something like that? Yeah, right around that time, I believe. And now, um, you know, the tick as a vector is, you know, its range is spreading. Um, uh, 
also, you know, you could link this to um, we have a lack of predators in New England. I say we, even though I've left that cursed place um, because I've spent so much of my life there. A lack of um, predators, really. And so you have like an overabundance of like grazing animals like deer. Um, and they spread, I mean, they spread deer ticks. And also the range of ticks is changing because of climate change. So if you, you it's, they took, I guess, um, lime and quite possibly put it through these, put it in these ticks that escaped the lab in Connecticut. And now um, they're just kind of perfectly poised to spread further and further across the US because of climate change. Um, yeah. Yeah, and they used ticks. I mixed the two up. I'm not sure. So is is Lyme, Connecticut close to Plum Island, do you know? Yeah, I believe it's close. Um uh it's just Lyme, Connecticut is where the first cases were discovered and it was just like some I think a few young girls that had this like really bad uh kind of like rheumatic fever thing and um that they named it after there because the first like human cases were there but Plum Island is like um off the coast of New York um uh yeah um it's near the northeast coast of Long Island in New York State. Um, and yeah, it was reactivated in 1952 for the Army Chemical Corps and does um, like bio, it, it works on like biological um, disease research. Um, and it seems like maybe they do some sketchy um, uh, chemical research too um yeah uh yeah in fact in 1995 the department of agriculture was issued a 111,000 dollar fine uh for storing hazardous chemicals on the island um yeah so they it it's um it's interesting and I was going to go off topic for a second and say this seems a lot like the very controversial gain of function virus research that um, people have speculated is related to COVID. Um, that, you know, where they, they take, they say there's value to this because they can, you know, see how the viruses might mutate in the future, but they basically take already dangerous viruses that might not be able to spread through a vector like some type of coronavirus that is only bat to bat and then they work on it and tweak it until it now can spread to humans and then sometimes of course these things escape the laboratory i mean um there's no fail safe i don't know yeah on that not about uh coronavirus i saw an article today about how at like a factory farm for minks 
there's a COVID outbreak among the makes, which weird. is really weird. I feel like this has spread to so many different types of animals that you don't see in a lot of other kind of sicknesses. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't really been exactly what people would describe as a COVID truther. Like, I think it's like, um, I think most of what's happened uh, with it is like not the result of deliberate conspiracy, but more just like insane amounts of negligence and like lots of things that are like endemic scientific problem, structural problems, which I would discuss later with how they deal with chronic illnesses. Um, like the World Health Organization contradicting, saying, wear don't wear masks, then wear masks, saying this is no big deal in January, saying this is a huge deal now. But I've seen a couple really credible threads about relating COVID to some of the gain-of-function um, uh, research done in laboratories in uh, Wuhan. Um, and that... They never really actually traced it, like determined that it definitively came from a wet market. Like it could have been from a scientist who visited a wet market, um, which was actually close to the facility. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's, I mean, a tiny bit off track because there's like so much to go into with Lyme, which is weird. Um, I can talk about like, how I came to sort of get into the mind fuck, just weird controversy about Lyme, which is just like one of the most strangely politicized diseases. And in fact, I would say that like, this sounds controversial, but in, at least in this day, like 2020, not, this wouldn't be okay to say if it was 1980. It's like a more politicized disease in some ways than HIV AIDS because the science is settled on HIV AIDS and there are many effective treatments. And yes, there's a lot of stigma from homophobes, but there's not debates about whether it's real mm -hmm. that are prominent. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that was another part, uh, like a big part of the the book about the history of Lyme disease is that the there's like a conference every year of I believe it's called the IDSA, right? The International Disease or Infectious Disease something. Oh yeah, I forget the what it stands for, but I know what you're talking about. But the the Lyme disease specialists, there's like very heavy security. They don't talk to press they're very secretive and aggressive and there's protesters every year or however often it is protesting for them to recognize chronic Lyme as real because it's categorized as like a psychological issue Lyme disease is not rare and chronic Lyme disease is not rare it's an epidemic of staggering proportions there's a stranglehold by a, a small group that wants to keep Lyme patients untreated. Today, I, I'm just asking and praying that somebody in that building over there 
can develop a trace of skepticism for what they think they know for sure. And like a big part of it was reflecting on that. And then the author went to a different conference for a different illness. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they said like, it was so weird that these doctors would just talk to you and you could just ask them questions because after so many times of trying to talk to the Lyme experts where they're, they just go, I don't talk to the press, like talk to whoever else and like super high security. And by comparison from like every other disease, that's not normal for right. it to be so secretive. Right. Yeah. And the other thing about it is that um, I do think like, for lack of a better term, like the skeptic community or whatever has framed this whole debate very black and white in terms of like either there is a chronic infection which of course they allege there isn't or it's a psychosomatic disease even though we know like MECFS is an example that there are like a num or polio for god's sake that there are a number of like really intense post-infectious syndromes even if we say, and I'm not saying this, that the Lyme, like uh, bacteria is gone, the spirochete is gone in uh, some patients, um, but they still have symptoms, but doesn't follow that the symptoms are hysteria. And I think that's like a really pernicious idea. And it's also led to this like really polarized debate because if you have a fucking serious, maybe like autoimmune disease, of course, you're not going to be happy about being told it's psychosomatic because it's not helpful. It's like, it's, yeah, I don't know. And there's lots of bad faith stuff where people are like, well, what's wrong with having this psychosomatic illness? Like, are you ableist for not wanting to be called a hysteric? You know, I don't know. Yeah, no, I found that so weird. And it's like a weird way to classify it. And also it's like they are not interested in testing it or looking into it further. Like it, they're like, it's decided that it doesn't exist. And that's that. It's very weird. Right. But I can give you like a quick history to explain some parts of the history of like bioweapons and why Lyme is the way it is, if you want. Yeah, sure. Okay, so this goes all the way back to World War II, obviously, but like, so during World War II, there was Operation Paperclip, and I don't know if there was a name for it, but they had a similar mm, operation going for Japanese scientists, like very high up ones, because they had done like really awful experiments, and the Americans wanted the information on that. So, a lot of these doctors were working with the CIA. I don't know exactly, I meant to look this up earlier, but I forgot how the Korean War started. But when it did, and when the US got involved, um, they had basically completely destroyed the Korean Peninsula every piece of infrastructure was just destroyed and i believe it was general macarthur 
was saying that they wanted to go further with it, but they ended up using, um, basically the Korean War kind of turned into uh, a testing ground for some chemical weapons, but mostly biological weapons. So they needed the, for like example, they would like, um, drop weather balloons of feathers, but the feathers were dusted with anthrax. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's really awful shit. They would dust it with like anthrax and plague and, um, I believe it was called Tongo fever, but I'm not for sure. But they basically created a belt right around the parallel where it's still split today. So right where the, so the Americans had basically retreated to the South and they create, they created a belt of sicknesses and they wanted to work more with high altitude drops, but they couldn't drop certain insects. And when you add a vector to carry the disease, I guess you can do a lot more with it because I guess anthrax wasn't enough, but they wanted to use a vector. But from such a high altitude, you couldn't use certain animals or insects. And I believe ticks was one of the only ones that you could use at a high altitude and they would end up being okay. And the beginning of this bitten book is about a, uh, he was in the military working for the air force and they were dropping over, they were dropping packages either over Cuba or Korea and they cut it open with a knife before they dropped it and bugs started crawling out and then they just dumped it and then the guy who dropped it his son got sick and almost died yeah that was over Cuba right yeah and Son ended up getting really sick and almost died, but somehow survived. And he went to his boss and his boss said, just burn all of your clothing. So they were carrying a bunch of diseases. But that was from 1950 to 1953. And then um, in the middle of the war, this is kind of part of it, but also kind of separate. Some American pilots got captured and confessed to dropping bioweapons. And um, as an excuse, basically, to say that they were still lying, even though they were telling the truth, the U.S. government said, oh, they've been brainwashed to say these things. Yeah. I think I saw you thread on this or, or, or post on this, that this is where MK ultra originated. Right. Yeah. Because they wanted to do their own brainwashing experiments. Um, like in return, I, I, I'm just like, uh, trying to understand the logic here. 
So they wanted to be able to claim that the Koreans had brainwashed their soldiers to admit to what they actually did, which was poison um, Koreans, and that in return they were going to experiment with brainwashing Americans. Um, is that roughly right? Yeah, kind of. There was a few different reasons, but the Korean War was the big jumping off point for like MK Ultra. But they also wanted to be able to get a truth serum for interrogating people. But it was mostly, yeah. Right. First thing, oh, they've been brainwashed. Well, we need our own brainwashing right. program. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is it, it's, seems like actually from a, like a pharmacological standpoint lsd really isn't like a good exactly a effective truth serum i mean it can be give people loss of inhibition but it seems like they i don't want to like fall into the trap of saying like the military the cia aren't incompetent like i definitely don't believe that but it seems like sort of similar to like how mangala or like various people would do these just like um quote-unquote ex human experiments that would be almost just like wanton cruelty for the sake of it that had almost very little like actual physiological purpose because it, it doesn't seem like they got that much success with LSD as a brainwashing or truth serum agent. I mean, it's like um, people will say anything on that shit. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's something I've been thinking about a lot because a lot of this stuff does not make any sense from like a logical standpoint, but it, it does make sense and I'll explain why, but like, by their logic, but um, I mean the one thing is that LSD does make people really plastic, and some of the cults that emerged from that time, the cult leaders actually seem to know how to use LSD better than the CIA did. I don't know if they're CIA trained, like the Lyman, what's that cult called? The one in Boston, Mel Lyman. Um, uh, it was a very famous cult, but. I can remember the name of the leader, but not the, um, uh, you know, he was like a folk singer, but he also had this cult in like, um, Dorchester in Boston. Um, uh, the Lyman family. Yeah. Um, the Fort Hill community. Um, yeah. Uh, he, he said that he like turned people into like jello with LSD and then like built them back up in his image. Yeah, see, that's that was like uh, that kind of mirrors what the CIA uh, wanted to do because what they wanted to do was test if you could shatter basically, or they would call it depattern someone's consciousness and then rebuild from there and make someone who you want them to be. Yeah. And they definitely shattered a lot of people's consciousness, but they never really managed to completely rebuild a new person. They right. they did get 
and success, but. Right. Because there's, yeah, I imagine, I don't know, like what doses they're using, but there is this like kind of evil thing that the Grateful Dead family, which I think of as kind of like sinister hippie mafia um, used to do where they give people thumbprint doses of LSD, which is like any amount of LSD that you can see in a powder form is like 10, 20, maybe 50 or 100 times too much. They give them a whole like thumbprint of powder, like a like a dose that's like literally maybe a million times the dose that most people take to trip. And it would just shatter people. Um, as either a punishment or an initiation. Um, yeah, and I don't know if the CIA figured out like the exact dose range to do this. Also, it's just like any any like sedative, like sodium um, theopental that I think they used to use instead, like would actually probably be more effective as a truth serum if that's all they wanted it for. There's no such thing as a truth serum. People can lie when they have their inhibitions down. They can be trained to lie to when there's inhibition down. But like, if there's something close to it, it would be, I mean, you know, like barbiturates, something similar to booze. I don't know, you know, anesthesia, um, like or, like twilight anesthesia, an amount that doesn't totally knock you out, but like, but still, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, Sorry, I went on a tangent there, but I kind of am interested in getting, like, I guess what they did with MK Ultra is a form of bioware warfare, but I'm like kind of interested in getting, because there's so much ground to cover into like the, the whole kind of history of I mean, kind of literal poisoning. I think of LSD use as like psychological torture, but I, I'm i talking about sort of like pathogens and toxins in the environment, um, stuff like that. Um, so I kind of wanted to get back to that a little bit. I mean, cause we could do, we could do a whole episode on MKUltra and it would be very cool, but I am also, like i know that i get off topic easily so it's just like and there's so much here you know yeah i will just say about the barbiturates that's the one that they did have success with if you have barbiturates with uh alcohol and hypnosis and like multi-trigger hypnotic system that's how they um framed someone for Robert F. Kennedy's assassination, but- Sirhan Sirhan? Okay, yeah, that's yeah. something I didn't know. Okay, I'm learning new things. Yeah, see it. My background here is really like only a very cursory knowledge of um, like political economy and also of like this history. Like I said, I kind of came from the point of getting very, very ill and working my way backwards. 
and red pilling myself into trying to figure out like what happened to me and if it was fixable and and that went beyond like like i wanted it to just be the practical scope of i gotta find a good doctor and get this over with um but it ended up getting me to realize that there are a lot of kind of mystified i i didn't i was gonna say mysterious but Mysterious implies supernatural, and it's more that they've been mystified by our lack of understanding, sometimes deliberately mystified environmental toxins. And, uh, you know, I would even call it fucking miasma, which was like this theory of illnesses that was discredited a while ago because the germ theory came along, even though they're totally compatible as theories miasma is the idea that just bad air made you sick like so people would open windows and stuff florence nightingale really thought that like miasma caused flu and that airflow helped protect against that and then when people discovered germs under microscopes uh like pathogens they thought that it wasn't like they thought it discredited the miasma theory but uh you know i think it's more relevant than ever you know i have seen so many examples of bad air making people sick even if a pathogen that's internal is also involved mm-hmm. so i kind of like i said know less about what you're talking about but worked my way backward like re- retroactively from getting sick or like thinking about the causes, researching the causes, to finding out some strange stuff about um, really understudied field of like a few types of pollutants and like biotoxins that I think have almost certainly increased a lot in the past, I want to say 40 years. and that chronic diseases, very heterogeneous ones, have skyrocketed in that time period too. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of this could be like deliberate military release of bioweapons, and some of it could be not that, but even when it's not that, it's like emergent from this kind of military industrial um i mean like you know i'm talking about like nanoparticle pollution which i will get into more later after i let you finish um but i just want to say we don't measure that really i mean there have been some studies that measure that pm 2.5 when you like when fucking when you live in portland and the sky is orange and you look out you look at the map uh, and look at the air quality index, that's measuring PM 2.5. That's 2,500 nanometers. That's 2,500 times like the smallest nanoparticle. And so, and maybe HEPA filters or air purifiers can get that, but they cannot get like the majority of nanoparticles and we're not even measuring them. Like we have no idea. Yeah, wow. So, we all know air pollution is really bad. It's like underrated bad. It's like 
it's so bad that even though I'm not inclined to like support things like nuclear, because I think to some extent we need like degrowth and we don't need to settle on imperfect things where we can have waste storage accents. Like, even though I'm not inclined to do that, I would, you know, we'd probably save lives just because of how bad regular air pollution is, PM 2.5. But then you add in, I think that's the tip of the iceberg. You add in um, nanoparticulate pollution, which we don't even measure, and it's almost certainly a huge issue. And just Jesus fucking Christ, like, it's probably the biggest killer. Um, and it's probably the main contributor to like, I mean, I'm a young person and I look around, like, I'm very ill, I'm bedridden, but on the other hand, I don't even think I have that many friends who are like super healthy, who don't have like some form of ADD or depression or just like low energy. I don't, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yes, I'm sicker than them. I'm probably more susceptible in some way. But like, I, I feel like I don't know almost anyone that's like really thriving, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I used to like only want to attribute that to social factors because I was like such a theory head and I was like, okay, that's because of like so, so, social stressors. And like, I don't want to underplay those, but I think that abstracts and idealizes things too much when there are literal fucking poisons that we haven't even begun to like deal with. Yeah. Well, I'll just pick up where I started with the Korean War, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, there's two things that I just wanted to say that are, I say the CIA kind of as almost like a blanket term because there's different parts of the military and the government and intelligence agencies that work together, but uh, most of it works under the umbrella of the CIA because they have the most like productions and they can do whatever they want. But they, um, two things is their justification. This also came from the military for doing a lot of this stuff, which didn't actually change all that much when they wanted to continue what they were doing when they got in trouble. So they would justify what they did by saying, well, we just want to make sure, or we're just testing because we don't know what we need for the third world war. And then when, so I don't know what year it was, but it was a sheep incident. The Doug run Oh my God, I forgot the name of it. But there was, they were testing some flights, I guess, and a nozzle on the plane was turned the wrong way, I guess. And they accidentally released nerve agent over the US, over civilian area in uh, New Mexico, I believe. 
Okay, interesting. Nobody was down there. It was just sheep, and 6,000 sheep died. But if they had flown over, like, Salt Lake City, like, there'd be, like, tens of thousands of deaths. And that was during the Nixon presidency. And so he kind of shut down biological and chemical weapons testing. But I believe that they kept doing testing under the guise of saying they weren't doing offensive testing, but they were saying, we don't know what the Soviet Union has. So they would provoke the Soviet Union or they would plant fake intelligence to make the Soviets think that the U.S. had way more advanced bioweapons than it did. So then the Soviet Union would say, they would go, oh my God, we need to work on this to protect ourselves. And then they could turn around, the U.S. could turn around and say, well, the Soviet Union has a chemical weapons program. We need our own. So it would provoke a feedback loop anyways. And whenever they would get in trouble for fucking up like a offensive program, they'd say, well, we're going to do the same thing, but it's only in defensive because we don't know what the Soviets have. So they, and it's like, no, I heard this. It was like, nobody believes the propaganda more than the propagandists themselves, which is so true because they really did convince themselves of this stuff. But that's just the first thing. The second thing with how they work is this confused me for a really long time and it still kind of does confuse me, but the experiments that they were testing have no real use. They were just barbaric, horrific things to do to people. And they had no medical relevance at all, but they would still say, we need these guys for their results. And there is like a straight line through certain events. So like World War II and like the Nazi rat lines to the Korean War to, uh, I don't know if it was, if they probably would have been in South America, but then like the Vietnam War. Uh, then, you know, like the Contra War, a lot of this stuff, they uh, were utilizing like the same tactics. And especially in the Vietnam War, they had the Phoenix program where they would torture people and they would test these medical experiments and like drugs on them. And like the barbarity of it really confused me because they know that torture doesn't work. And that's another thing about the uh, torture report that came out about 2001, where they said, oh, they knew that it didn't work or, oh, it didn't actually work. Yeah. But that's not not really the scandal because they knew it doesn't work. They've known that forever. And so it kind of confused me why they would do this, especially the Phoenix program, because I believe it was the biggest one. But I think for the most part, it's to polarize society and make people take a side and whatever else. But that's just because you said like, it doesn't really have any medical relevance, why they would even do these tests. And like, that's the most conclusion I can give you 
for why they do like really horrible things in the name of like medical science. Yeah. But, and then obviously some of them are just really sickos. I mean, yeah, there are a few things I can think of. I want to like, for one, you know, it makes me think of, because like, as I'll get into later when I talk about MECFS and some of the research there, um, everyone has this idea that science is like self-correcting and that um, it's just like, yeah, a kind of self-correcting system that, um, you know, you know, we can just believe data, but it's never like that, right? Like, so when you're talking about how torture doesn't work, I mean, this is almost kind of too, I don't know, light of an analogy, but it reminds me of when the phrase that scientists have, um, or at least like the aware ones, that's like, if you torture the data enough, it'll say anything. And I mean, because I do think of some of like the epistemic aspects of like, um, issues with science, like the science behind um, some of this like total ignorance of like how we're poisoning people, some of the science behind like denial of like Lyme is a major problem and MECFS and these diseases is being rooted in um, a similar attitude where the point isn't to get, when you say torture doesn't work, it means it doesn't get the truth but they do get people to say things. They do get people to confess. And similarly, uh, the, with science, they're in, taking data and shaping it to say whatever they want, which is kind of like the this like idea that both we can't question scientists or we can't question like expertise and combined with how plastic like the data actually is how they can shape it into anything they that fits um i don't know like neoliberal hegemony um is like i don't know a contradiction that's really important to understanding a lot of this science stuff um uh yeah i mean I don't know if that was too far afield, but I was just thinking about like, like, of course, torture doesn't work, but it works in that they get people to confess to things they didn't do. They get people to say anything. And it reminds me of like whatever famous like neocon hubris, like the famous quote from some Bush administration staffer in like the 2000s to a reporter that's like, um, we just create our own reality. We act, we create the reality and you just write it down. Yeah. Yeah. But similarly, there are scientists who are involved in MECFS research, which I'll get to later, that probably don't view themselves as, um, as like buffoons, like, Bush or as like uh, they don't view themselves as like warmongers 
but they have a similar attitude where they make the reality. I mean, they're taking this data that says their trial failed and um, and then just changing like the recovery outcomes and just shifting it so that it then says that their trial was a success um, and that this illness is psychosomatic. And then like after that, people spent like 10 years trying to do FOIA requests to even get the data. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, I'm trying to keep like a straight timeline because I don't like when things get out of chronological order, but um, a lot of this stuff took place, I mean, obviously, from like the direct end of World War II to like 1967 ish. Okay. Um, I just have like basically two more things to say about like the history of this stuff. But um, one is they, this kind of connects it to modern day. Um, well, actually, no, I'll just read this because this is what they would do with like genetic engineering with uh, illnesses and stuff and what they were trying to accomplish after a while because at first I think that they were just doing total experimentation doing whatever they wanted uh, and they wanted to cause as much chaos and destruction as possible on Korea but that ended in 1953 so this says this is in 1955 one of Willie Bergdorfer who is the uh, bioweapons guy who discovered Lyme disease. I, do you know about that? Him? Well, I know that he discovered Lyme disease. Like he, it was named after him, Borrelia burgdorferi. But I don't yeah. know that much about him. Um, so I'd, yeah, I'd appreciate if you, yeah you went on. They called some things the Swiss agent because he was Swiss. You talk about the Swiss agent as the smoking gun. What what did you mean by that? So um, when Willie was getting close to death, he had a bunch of his research files in his garage in Hamilton, Montana, and he wanted them archived for posterity. And there was um, a lot of his early work from Fort Detrick, which was headquarters of the biological weapons program in the U.S. for decades. and. In there, I saw, um, you know, that he was directly involved in the bioweapons program for two decades, and he spent quite a bit of time in Fort Detrick. And then I found um, some lab, a lot of his original lab work from um, the Lyme discovery that wasn't in the National Archives in the Willie Bergdorfer papers that just showed that there was this other organism at ground zero of the Lyme disease outbreak that was never reported in any medical journals or discovery articles. And it was like, hmm, what is that? It was a rickettsial, which is a little bacterium. It's, uh, uh, there's many species, subspecies of rickettsials, but they're sort of halfway between a bacteria and a virus and they're so small and they hide inside of cells, living cells. So they're not easy to test for or see unless you were an expert like Willie. And what, he noted in, in his original lab books is that uh, 
almost every tick and original Lyme patient had those rickettsials in them, which seemed like it would be an important finding, but it was never reported. He discovered Lyme disease, but they don't really tell a lot of people that he was a bioweapons engineer, not a medical science guy, like a doctor. But in 1955, one of his assignments or his ongoing projects, I'll just read you a direct quote. Joe McCleary, a White House aide under President Jimmy Carter, former treasurer of the DNC, and a biosecurity expert who seemed to know more about Cold War bioweapons than any other person I'd interviewed thus far. That's from this book. Right. McCleary was also founder of Q Global, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So, William Patrick III, head of product development at the Fort Detrick Bioweapons Program, was also friends with McCleary. So this says, Patrick had told McCleary that America's first deployable incapacitating biological weapon was an aerosolized mix of a toxin, a virus, and a bacterium designed to create a prolonged period of incapacitation across a population. So this is specifically engineered for their exact purpose. Okay, wait. First, wait, I'm sorry. sorry. Can I just stop you there? Because that that's... Okay. That is like central to the theory that I've had about most of these related chronic illnesses, that it doesn't just take a pathogen, that you need a toxin. Like I've almost thought, okay, if I want to create an animal model of this or, um, you know, uh, uh, of course, uh, it test this, you know, create this illness. I don't think I could do it with just Lyme. Not everyone who gets Lyme gets this sick, right? But you take, like you said, a pathogen, a toxin, and yeah, a bacteria, a toxin, and a virus, was it? Um, all yeah. together. And so they were talking about doing this intentionally, mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you know, some people's immune systems are strong enough to fight off um many even some serious pathogens but a lot of toxins are immunosuppressive i mean mm -hmm. that this is i'm sorry i stopped you but that's like really central to like so much of this so much of these illnesses in my opinion yeah and no, i i have like five arrows pointing to this page because right if you send me the source like message me a screenshot that would be very interesting to me but also yeah feel free to go on um okay i'm just gonna keep reading it's like one page if yeah it's okay yeah so the first component staphylococcal enterotoxin b or seb was a toxic waste product of the bacterium that causes food poisoning in three to 12 hours, those who had breathed it in would come down with chills, headache, muscle pain, coughing, and a fever as high as 106 Fahrenheit. 
The second component, Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, would in one to five days cause a high fever and weakness and fatigue lasting for weeks. The third component, Q fever, would cause debilitating flu-like symptoms for weeks to months, including fever, chills, fatigue, and muscle pain. Q fever can be chronic and sometimes fatal. When exposed to this germ cocktail, mass-produced at the Pine Bluff Arsenal in Arkansas, theoretically, few people would die, but it, put it, but it could put a significant percentage of the population out of commission, making an invasion easier, and no city infrastructure would be harmed. Later, this part is so ironic, Henry Kissinger, questioned how non-lethal these weapons would be, and Riley noted that they would only be non-lethal for someone who has two nurses. So basically, it's incapacitating for a long period of time. It gives people uh, fatigue long-term, and... Um, it's low lethality, but it's designed to incapacitate and could possibly overwhelm healthcare infrastructure, which yeah. I found really fascinating. Okay. So what I find really interesting about that is I was going to wait and like let you just go over all of this biowarfare stuff in chronological order, and I know you kind of wanted to do that, but it's just... The parallels are too interesting to what I, what I wanted to get into um, because um, when I got very ill, I came into contact with someone named Eric Johnson, who was a survivor of like the Lake Tahoe outbreak of 1985, which was to most people's knowledge, a viral outbreak that mostly didn't kill people. I think he killed a couple people, but mainly because of flu-like illness that became chronic in a really large percentage of the people. Some of them still live there and are still not recovered. The waves of Lake Tahoe, Nevada appear almost angry this May morning. The turmoil of this usually calm lake is perhaps symbolic of the turmoil facing many residents in this resort community a turmoil created by a medical mystery that has haunted and frightened many people here for a year and a half. I was very tired, had, again, you know, bronchial problems, insomnia, the headaches continually. Then I started waking up just being in pain every day, whether it be backache, um, joint ache, um, and it was getting very difficult for me to perform. And to see uh, this many people uh, coming in whom we knew, uh, in accelerating numbers through the early spring uh, with a chronic fatigue syndrome and associated other findings that we then began to be alarmed. In fact, medical researchers have described scores of outbreaks similar to the one in Lake Tahoe. There have also been scores of explanations ranging from pesticides to mass hysteria to various infectious causes. But in recent years, increasing attention has been focused on the possibility of persistent viral infections. Anyway, and, and the CDC was called in to investigate. They called it hysteria, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to elaborate on that more later. But why 
I wanted to bring that up now is that Eric Johnson um, was a nuclear missile uh, launcher specialist. Like, I, I don't think he was ever deployed uh, like in a war. Like, you know, we haven't used nuclear weapons. He's trained in that capacity. He was in the army before he got sick. And he said that what they learned, they got like chemical warfare, like defensive training, like um, getting sprayed with stuff and then having to like decontaminate, et cetera. And that was helpful for him um, with mold toxins. But the thing that he said that's really similar to what you're saying is that they, his military bosses told him that um, a neutron bomb rather than um, whatever the main type of atomic bomb that's more physically destructive, a neutron bomb would be this ideal weapon for subtly but intensely incapacitating a population because it would not draw as much attention as like the type of bombs we dropped on Hiroshima. But the radiation would fuck up people's immune system enough on a population-wide basis that opportunistic diseases of many kinds would follow. And then that would have, what would happen is no one would be like point to, oh, this must be radiation sickness, especially if it wasn't like severe enough that they're at the skin falling off stage or whatever. What would happen is doctors would argue over um, is this uh, um, like which infectious disease it was, even though the infectious diseases were secondary to the, like the immune insult from the neutron bomb. Um, and that furthermore, some doctors might even just say this was hysteria because they couldn't find a consistent enough pattern. So wait, um, it was, um, you met someone he had, what disease? I'm so sorry. So, you know, I talked to someone who um, was a survivor of the like MECFS, uh, like viral outbreak in, but which also had environmental um, aspects in Lake Tahoe. But he had previously, oh, okay. previously had training in the military. And he said that in the military, his bosses were talking about how a neutron bomb would just like essentially um, knock out, be able to knock out like a fairly wide population's immune systems to the extent that opportunistic diseases would overtake them, not necessarily lethal, but very incapacitating, basically like what you were saying. And also that it wouldn't, rather than just like dropping one pathogen, it wouldn't be obvious because it would have would like a bunch of different opportunistic pathogens. Um, like one person would get enterovirus, one person would get Epstein-Barr, one person would get Lyme, whatever's in their region, whatever's in their like, I don't know, whatever they're exposed to. And so no doctors would be able to point to the root cause, like the actual immune suppressing insult of the neutron bomb. Yeah, I have heard of that. And that's the, it's, um, 
it's similar to why they i mean i know they're kind of there's some that are like they go hand in hand but i've only heard of the neutron bomb on its own and why it would be preferred but uh part of the reason that they wanted to experiment with germ warfare that i know is kind of part of uh the neutron bomb like almost as a thought experiment is that it kills what's living and it doesn't damage property which was a huge part of it they wanted to save the property and infrastructure and only get rid of the people basically yeah yeah and um so what i found interesting is that so this guy who was in the army and learned that about the neutron bomb he you know came home or whatever and he was living in tahoe when this outbreak occurred and he said he observed the same thing that there was a geographic pattern to the outbreak so we're talking initially it's a pathogen um it seems like a pathogen people get a flu but in some places they you know it just didn't seem to spread out of certain zones people were infectious but then they like went out of tahoe or went out of a certain zone of tahoe and they didn't spread it as easily to other people or it wasn't as serious so then he thought of the neutron bomb as the thing that incapacitates and then allows uh the immune system it allows for like lots of opportunistic pathogens and thought maybe we're looking at like a second order effect when we're like chasing different pathogens um because all the doctors were arguing well some of them just thought it was hysteria but the ones that didn't were arguing is this epstein-barr is this enterovirus um you know some even thought it was lyme and whatnot but he was saying i see this environmental pattern that absolutely no one is looking into to a micro level like not just that the town of tahoe is affected but he said that he even like drew he when he started to viscerally realize this effect drew like a map in incline village in tahoe of the specific areas where um like in houses where people were the sickest in this outbreak and then where they weren't um so they're like different zones um of bad air affecting them and this started with literally just observation that then there's i can now say after like that was in 85 and that was very astute observation then um partially based on knowing about how bio warfare works um but now i think there's a lot more science that's actually been done that would um uh validate this but essentially like there was a geographic pattern to this outbreak that led this person to suspect environmental factors is the primary thing the pathogens were just secondary things that doctors were chasing and researchers and um then starting to investigate what those environmental things were to some extent it was obvious that there was toxic mold in buildings 
that um, was uh, making people sicker during this outbreak, people that also had the bug of or pathogen. But at the same time, um, this person, Eric, kind of went further in thinking like, well, you know, not all mold is toxic and there's like outdoor toxins too um, that are affecting people. Like there's this whole toxic zone of air and it's not just, uh, I don't know, natural mold. Um, and so that's kind of something that has become, partially because it's affected me, a really big interest in, um, I have is how biotoxins like the toxins produced by mold or cyanobacteria or um even regular bacteria i mean some of which you've already mentioned already like um and which have been weaponized interact with um pollution and with like other chemicals often to become more virulent or more bioavailable like mold spores literally actually aggregate um, nanoparticles of industrial material when they're in like construction sites or just out in the world nanoparticles of whatever industrial material concrete or you know metals from car exhaust actually sort of cling to the tips of mold spores and it changes how it makes them more pathogenic and that's actually that um, is actually kind of not really in dispute scientifically anymore. But at the time, it was a wild guess that I think was prescient. These are quotes from Eric Johnson, the man who virtually invented extreme mold avoidance based on his experiences in the army with chemical weapons training. In my military career as a launcher specialist for the neutron bomb, I was trained to look for what doesn't happen after a neutron strike, a loss of immune function, which leaves one susceptible to nearly anything, as opposed to consequences arising as a normal consequence from normal infection. That is exactly the type of effect that I witnessed during the 1985 Tahoe Mystery Malady, an inexplicable loss of immune function that appeared to correlate to environmental locations. I have read that fungi serve as bio-nanofactory for biosynthesis of nanoparticles. It seems to me that mold does not normally have access to fine metallic particulate matter, which can be processed into ultra-fine nanoparticles, as modern pollution did not always exist. These metallic nanoparticles are known to affect the microglial cells and induce CP450 decoupling with the subsequent production of reactive oxygen species, which is entirely consistent with CFS. The activities of humans have dramatically changed the potential for contact between fungi and ubiquitous airborne metalloparticulates. If mold is capable of what the article below says mold is doing and is converting ambient atmospheric fine metal particles into even smaller nanoparticles, the global environment is in deeper trouble than anyone suspects. 
The inception of chronic fatigue syndrome just might have been the cautionary warning for nanoparticulates that nobody heeded. In the Saratoga Springs manual, the hints of a sudden surge in fungal pathogenesis is mentioned in several places where the effects match nothing in their mycotoxin literature. Dr. William Croft, who published the first peer-reviewed abstracts on trichothecene toxicity in the United States, said the effects were radiomimetic. IAQ experts Pierre Aguerre and Harriet Burge agree that T2 mycotoxins fall short of achieving this level of illness. My own experiments with mold samples suggest that there are special times when this effect blazes forth with an intensity and magnitude that causes a quote hit and run effect upon the neuroimmune system which baffles physicians trying to identify a toxic substance. Several years ago, I saw an abstract which described the capability of certain molds and bacteria to act as biosynthesizers of nanoparticles. My speculation is that the mutation discovered by Dr. Shoemaker has resulted in the conjugation of this resistance property by various powerful toxin-forming molds, which are now capable of withstanding the antimicrobial effects of human-induced ubiquitous metal particulates and processing them into hazardous nanoplumes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't, I don't know anything about that, but. Well, it does relate to like what you were saying about that specific experiment with the the three factors um, to incapacitate a population because there was all this debate. Is this environmental? Is this a pathogen? When the answer that actually made more sense is both a dual factor thing where um, there has to be something that suppresses the immune system for the pathogen to like wreak as much havoc as it did. Um, and I think that's true with why, explains why some Lyme cases become chronic and some don't. I mean, there obviously are some people who get Lyme, which is probably why they don't believe in it, in chronic Lyme. And really just clear up after their three weeks of doxycycline and then there's a, a significant amount that become chronically ill and it's the same thing for virtually every pathogen mono 10 percent of people end up with um mecfs or myalgic encephalomyelitis such chronic fatigue syndrome at the six month mark for sars covid one it was like 80%. Definitely some pathogens are nastier than others, but also I do think that there has to be one or two other factors. Um, I strongly focus on the environmental one. There's some congenital things that are also not, that are also linked to environmental problems that I think can also make one susceptible. Um, especially connective tissue problems because Lyme fucking destroys connective tissue even in healthy people 
And so if you have some kind of uh, probably a, as of yet poorly understood genotype or phenotype um, that affects connective tissue, um, Lyme could really be the thing that makes you go from being harmlessly like hypermobile, just kind of like a ballet dancer or whatever, to really sick and your like connective tissues falling apart in ways that are very damaging to your body. There is a town in North Ontario Stream comfort memory despair Rise in very strong support today of the Tick-Borne Disease Research Accountability and Transparency Act of 2014, an historic bill authored by my good friend and distinguished colleague, Congressman Chris Gibson. For all those who suffer from this hideous disease, thank you, Chris. I would also like to extend my very special thanks to Chairman Fred Upton and Joe Pitts, as well as their staff, and for their tireless efforts to ensure the final bill brought before the floor today establishes a means to address the gaps, and I mean the huge gaps that exist and the great unmet need in the Lyme community. The House bill that we will vote on today for the first time identifies and seeks to address chronic Lyme disease. Mr. Speaker, the CDC says, and I quote them, quote them approximately 10 to 20% of patients treated for Lyme disease with a recommended two to four week course of antibiotics will have lingering symptoms of fatigue, pain, or joint and muscle aches. I would respectfully submit their symptoms of something that has a root cause. The CDC refers to chronic Lyme as, quote, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And many people have been dismissed and said, oh, you're just, you're a hypochondriac. You're suffering, for, you know, it's, it's all mental. And yet, they don't, th there's just so many cases, it can't be dismissed. The first time I heard of C CFS, I believe, was from that one doctor. Okay, can I just ask you your opinion on the video Plandemic? Did you watch that? Um, yeah, a little bit. I actually, you know, I am pretty, uh, I don't really like um, Mikovits. I know a lot about her and her history. I think she's an opportunist. And I, I really don't, like, it's not like I think the idea of vaccines being problematic or retroviruses being, playing a role in any of this is inherently um, crazy. But Mikovits' specific theories, I just don't think her work is robust. I don't know. I mean, sorry to disappoint. Like, I, um, no, no, no. I completely she did, agree. She did. Um, uh, 
I mean, the thing is that, and I think Eric Johnson, who's a really interesting guy, um, who's the person I was talking about earlier, actually, he knew Mikovits. He's been around this community um, for way longer than me. He met her in person. She was working at like the University of Reno or something. She was working because Reno is near Tahoe and all these original MECFS doctors in the US were in Tahoe. And so the research they did ended up being at like an institute in Reno and she worked there at like the Peterson something Institute. And she um, did maybe accidentally fraudulent research with a re mouse retrovirus um, and then kind of got discredited. And the thing is like in the MECFS community, if someone discovered a single like virus that was um, a serious virus, like a retrovirus that was associated with the disease, um, like she claimed to before we found out that it was just contaminated samples, it would be the biggest deal and no amount of like, you know, big pharma pressure against whatever or like any forces would keep that from getting out to people and keep that person from being a legend. But instead she was essentially disgraced until she latched onto the COVID pandemic. Because what happened is she got everyone in the CFS community really excited about this XMRV research in, um, I believe it was like 2013, 2014. And, you know, got a lot of mainstream press. And then they found out that it was just contaminated lab samples. And then every scientific publication that until then was like, wow, maybe this disease is real after all. I was like, okay, guess it's not real. So I, I kind of have hard feelings about her role and like self-aggrandizement in that, you know? Yeah. No, I didn't like it, but that was just the first time I heard of CFS. Right. And I guess that was like way unnecessary for me to ask, but no, yeah, I agree about the video. It was confusing where it was. They, I mean, they kind of just said, oh, it's, it's not even that bad. It's not that big of a deal that the coronavirus isn't. And then they also said, uh, it's a bioweapon and it was meant to be a lot worse. And I just thought that didn't really make a lot of sense, but, uh, Anyways, the, the part that I found interesting about the three combinations of viruses is that the main, it, it, its main goal was to uh, basically fatigue a whole population. Like, right. if it, like, that's a huge factor in it. And it's just like, really, I don't know. It's like blatant. Right. And Q fever is known to be one of the viruses that causes ME-CFS. I don't know if it's more prominent in like Australia and the UK, because I haven't heard as many people here have it. But I know a lot of people abroad, like online, that that was their onset for ME-CFS was Q fever. Really? That's interesting. And then, then that was... Um... 
So that excerpt was my one point. And then I just had one more thing and it's also environmental. So I don't know if you had anything more to say on the last part, but then I just have like my last little piece to say, and then we can go from there on environmental. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the last kind of testing of like weapons that I found really interesting and like definitely super relevant was crop destruction. So they did this a lot uh, in Japan. They com- they had their worst harvest ever, and they would have had a huge famine if the occupation government under General MacArthur didn't bring in like a huge amount of food. Like it was, I think their worst harvest in history, in Japanese history, like either 90 or 1945. And it's because they were flying low altitude, spraying diesel over the crops and destroying it. And then they also had rice bugs or rice diseases to rot the crop and they i believe they had one more so they took a totally like uh scorched earth three different ways to destroy the crop and they definitely succeeded so but what they were going to do was completely starve the cities until they surrendered. Right. And then they, after they surrendered, they brought in the food and realized that that was like a really horrible thing to do. And so they kind of were like, okay, let's not talk about that anymore. But so then that kind of became a common theme where they want people to become desperate and need food. And so then the US and our production of corn, we have huge abundance of food and can export a lot of it. And that's a big part of what the world bank is today is making people dependent on the U S for food and food trade. But right. Because we have huge surpluses. I mean, yeah. uh, Yeah. And, and also we have huge surpluses and I would say at the expense of our agriculture, biodiversity and health in our, um, and environmental health, like especially in the Midwest, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, so Russia, I don't know the exact numbers at all, but they, their main crop was like wheat and our main, like our main crop is corn, but theirs is wheat. So what they were doing was testing certain um they call them race race 56 oh it's a stem rust so i don't know if it ruins the whole thing but it's a parasite i believe so they had uh stem rust and they were experimenting with it uh they had open fields at fort detrick completely open and they were they decided in 1948, the National Security Council's plan to destroy the Soviet wheat crop moved up on the priority list, and Fort Detrick needed more spores. 
and in the pounds, not ounces. So they needed to grow huge farms to grow wheat crop. And like when you grow it, it grows spores on the stems and then you can release that and it infects like the rest. And it is like one stem can make like 400,000 spores. So it's really effective at spreading. But what they did, um, let's see, where is it? In 1949 and 1950, so that's a year after, um, they disseminated the wrong spores um, into wheat fields in upstate New York, included wheat rust spores as well, blah, 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 blah. Somehow or other, a formally untroublesome race of stem rust, race 15B, began growing pustules on wheat plants in hundreds of Western farms. Basically, they cause, so the epidemic carried on in 1952 and 53, quote, it caused disastrous epidemics for four successive years between 1951 and 54, wrote Norman Borlaug. In 1954, a quarter of the bread wheat and three quarters of the pasta wheat were destroyed in the United States. So basically they're testing all these weapons and uh, like basically like using GMOs right almost to destroy the soviet crop but they're doing it on such a large scale that it was open air and it got out onto all of the farms in the u.s and it like destroyed the crops here right and they they also so in their attempt to do that they all um i believe it was east germany they dropped potato beetles and there's just a common theme of them trying to destroy crops. And then also this goes right into today. So they wanted to destroy crops, but I think a part of that was they want, they, so they would create wheat rust resistant strains of wheat. So basically kind of like what Monsanto with Roundup uh, Ready, with Roundup Ready. Um, yeah, with the seeds, they would patent the seeds so they would be protected from these diseases, but you'd have to buy the Roundup with the seeds. And right. so basically what they were doing was engineering these seeds to be resistant from whatever disease they were going to put on the Soviets' wheat because they don't know how far it can travel because it can, it can travel like miles up into the atmosphere and spread on the entire earth. But yeah, so they, it was basically like really early GMOs to protect themselves from whatever they were going to do to the Soviet crops, which I found like really right. interesting and in how that's affected how much like glyphosate we are using today and stuff, you know? Yeah, right. And that is really like the thing that uh, ardent GMO defenders don't talk about is the context in which it's actually used like 
whether or not a genetically modified organism is inherently unsafe. It's like um, what the whole idea of um, taking of taking a, a pesticide and using it really widely because you have a crop that's resistant to it, like what that is going to do to biodiversity is just insane. Mm -hmm. And um, so one thing that people are actually, I think fairly aware of, and this is also something that's been studied. So this isn't just speculation in terms of second order effects like i keep saying yeah may like i don't know personally i haven't read enough to know if you drink glyphosate that's bad for you i wouldn't do it but more importantly what people never talk about in the like kind of simping for like monsanto and simping for gmos and saying glyphosate is safe is that if you do I mean, monoculture is bad enough, but also if you use glyphosate um, on all of these crops, um, even if it doesn't kill those crops that are Roundup Ready, um, it kills many like parts of the microbiome, like different funguses, different um, microbes, bacteria, et cetera, in the soil but does not kill certain ones which have become resistant to it, like fusarium mold, which is very nasty stuff. And so the Midwest has lots of cornfields just like filled with uh, fusarium mold, which is nasty because of the how glyphosate um, disrupts the environment. Um, I mean, yeah, you were talking about the effects on the food supply. And then I, yeah, what I have been thinking about is the effects on um, human health, even through in inhalation, um, especially. I mean, although, yeah, it's also a problem to eat. I mean, and yeah. <laughs> The interesting connection between biotoxins and, you know, biowarfare and intentional use is, I would say, the Gulf War, which I want to briefly touch on before. Um, and uh, if it's all right with you, I kind of wanted to just do a little bit of a speed run because I've done covered my story in previous episodes about like how I became sick, what I figured out about it. and kind of like quickly go over that for context and then talk about some of the specific environmental toxins that I believe are being ignored and the scientific incentives or disincentives for doing so um, in in just like this next segment, if, if that's all right with you. Yeah, for sure. But first, because I think this would be a point of shared interest, Let's talk about Gulf War syndrome. One out of three soldiers who fought in Operation Desert Storm are affected. In 1990 and 91, we sent 800,000 U.S. troops to the Middle East to fight in the first Gulf War. 
Dr. Nancy Klima says those soldiers were exposed to multiple chemical toxins, including organophosphate, in their uniforms. Out of 800,000 troops, some 300,000 veterans are now ill 27 years later. So one in three came back ill and stayed that way. Because that is a weird syndrome, and it's also it's similar to ME-CFS, it's similar to chronic Lyme, but it, in both in political terms of being like an illness that has been ignored very deliberately, but it's also similar in symptoms. And, um, and I think it serves as a good prototype or example for these other illnesses because people have almost virtually ignored environmental causes in MECFS research, even the good researchers, quote unquote, that don't think it's hysteria are still chasing viruses and looking at metabolism, but ignoring environmental causes. Um, but in Gulf War syndrome, I mean, Jesus, it's fucking impossible to ignore environmental causes. In fact, it's so it's impossible to ignore them, but it's also impossible to figure out which one it was because they're exposed to so much goddamn weird shit there. Um, um, I don't know, like, how much you know specifically about, like, what the soldiers were exposed to in the Gulf War, uh, first Gulf War, I guess. Um, but there's everything from nerve agent, like you were talking about, which is sarin gas, which is an organophosphate, which incidentally is similar to a lot of the pesticides we still fucking use in our country domestically. Um, and that um, is toxic in a number of ways. It can cause acute toxicity, but it also causes neural tube defects in the next generation. If it um, is, you know, passed on to a child, a, a fetus, um, it can cause Chiari, which is like a structural brain defect, tethered cord. Um, which I mostly have, which is a structural spinal cord defect, spina bifida, all of this stuff. Um, but that's just one thing. So they had the sarin gas and a lot of like, there's a lot of like burning of munitions um, that occurred. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I you know, when you burn shit, it's just like releases so much more it just complicates things so much. And I think that's something about the fires um, that I'll get into later and why it's worse than just wood smoke because you're having people's like, I mean, what happens, what goes into the air when you burn like a prefab like home in like um, Los Angeles or whatever, like it's not like <laughs> a campfire, but um, so they're burning munitions. Uh, they're getting exposed to sarin gas. They also took um, sarin gases, uh, uh, anticholinergic toxin, um, which can cause like paralysis and stuff. And um, and then they took a drug that was a cholinergic, um, pyridostigmine or mestinon as a prophylactic, but some people think that the combination of that drug as a prophylactic and the exposure was actually, um, didn't work as planned and could have led to a higher risk. Then there were a series of intense kind of vaccine schedules. 
and this is something where I have a chart that um, were this a video presentation I would show by a researcher on mitochondrial disease and Gulf War syndrome, Robert Navio, where he shows that troops who got um, the vaccines in a kind of staggered schedule before deployment had a way lower rate of illness than the ones who got them all when they were in Kuwait or Iraq, um, and, like right before combat um, because of like the added immune stress and stress. Um, and then there were, I mean, like, even at this point, I'm not even like halfway done. There are just so many environmental agents they're exposed to um, that, you know, and no one has done the work of narrowing this down. Um, there was also toxic cyanobacteria in the soil crust, the desert soil crust in um, Kuwait. It's just a lot, of, something a lot of people don't know is cyanobacteria can be very toxic, but people know them more from like algal blooms in bodies of water, but they also are very much present, types of them are present in desert soil and desert soil crusts. And I would imagine similarly to how I talked about how mold interacts with chemicals earlier, that, uh, you know, all of like the chemicals and particulates and bombing combined with the, the biotoxins from the cyanobacteria that could have made those worse. But they did a study and found that um, exposure to BMAA, which is a neurotoxin produced by these desert crust cyanobacteria, um, uh, was associated with high rates of ALS in um, and in Gulf War veterans. Um, and then there was also, I don't know if he ever used it, but Saddam actually had shells loaded with various mycotoxins. And this is very interesting to me because there's been so much debate about like, some skeptics who like say mold is barely even toxic, but it was used, it was known to be toxic enough that it was used in chemical warfare, just mycotoxins, um, toxins from common molds. Aflatoxin was, I think, the main one, but now the military has looked into even more toxic ones, which are the T2 toxins or tri I always mispronounce this, trisothecene toxins from stachybotrys charterum molds. Um, yeah. Um, so, and then there's just the fact that in any war, bombing, fires, high heat explosions produce nanoparticulates of various kinds. I think, you know, the more intensive an explosion or higher heat, the more likely that you'll create volatile organic chemicals and um, nanoparticles instead of like regular size small particles or whatever because um and that these are worse like size matters not just the material in terms of human health effects 
Mm-hmm. Um, do you know about the anthrax vaccine? A bit, yeah. Um, it w- was it given before they were deployed? Yeah. Right, and so yeah, I had just like I said vaguely went over that there was a vaccine schedule, but um, I did not know as much about that one. If you want to fill me in. Yeah, that one is really interesting to me. Well, first of all, during, I don't know how much you know about the lead up to the Gulf War and what caused it. Do you know much about that? Um, God damn. I mean, you know, I used to, but um, like I definitely, um, Saddam used to be our ally. And then I know that the, the stated reason or mainstream view is that it was because they invaded Kuwait or something, but I I don't know what the actual motive by HW was. Um, Yeah, it's, it's still pretty complicated. I don't really understand um, everything about it, but I know that, so they were allies with Saddam he was doing some stuff they didn't like. I think they wanted a reason to be able to demonize him after being his ally. But since he was our ally, all of his weapons were American weapons. So he had American anthrax, I believe. He definitely had American sarin and chlorine gas. But so they knew what weapons he had. Um. Anyway, so Kuwait was historically like a part of Iraq. And Saddam was kind of like, I'm going to, that's going to be part of Iraq again. And so the military invaded. I don't know how many people died, but I know that it was very sketchy. And George Bush, George H.W. Bush, kind of made it seem like the U.S. would be okay with Saddam taking uh, Kuwait and annexing it. And I believe they, like, even cut some communications to make sure that he went through with it, with invading, because they wanted him to do it just so that they could say, they could turn on him and invade Kuwait and Iraq. And so then um, when they were sending people out, they gave them the anthrax vaccine. But I uh, heard, I believe this was on from Whitney Webb and Robbie Martin. They said that troops would get on uh, like Navy ships to go deploy. And on the way there, they'd cut all communications and say, everyone has to take this vaccine. You have no option. You're trapped and you have to take it basically. And there was no objections, no option for that. And it was for anthrax, even though they kind of knew that they would not, 
like I'm fairly certain that the US side knew that Saddam would not deploy anthrax wide scale against the US invading. Right. So I, it's really weird why that they rushed this anthrax vaccine that wasn't very well proven, uh, that had a lot of weird side effects that they didn't know about. And it's just very sketchy that they even did it in the first place. Right. Right. And then the results are also very sketchy and how they decided to do it were very sketchy. Right. Yeah. And just like as a really quick side note, this is the kind of thing that like um I I think I point out the debate on like vaccines has become like so toxic. Like I I am not like um a Mikovitz fan and I don't think that all vaccines are like the cause of illness. I don't think a vaccine was the cause of my illness. I also think it's good to have polio vaccines. It's good to have, but like there's there's kind of like no middle ground, right? Like people sometimes will give you shit for even saying it's sketchy that they just tested this vaccine on um, a bunch of troops, like with no ability to opt out and no real reason, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they call it anti-vaxxers and not like, I mean, anti-vaxxers is a very general term when there's known, pretty well known and serious consequences for some vaccines. Like, yeah. the, uh, I think it's, it's not the HPV. One of I think those. it is the HPV, Gardasil. Yeah. But I mean, it's like that it's optional because it has side effects and they yeah. can be pretty serious. So, and go, just calling it anti-vax. And right. that makes it sound like you're against getting the MMR. Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's one of those can of worms they try and avoid delving into with lots of people because there is so much other stuff that I would even say, I mean, it's not even like my, the highest thing on the list of my like uh, ideas of causes of most chronic illness. So I usually... And if you bring it up, people are like, uh, you, you know, you are evil and, uh, you know, don't want people to get a polio vaccine. But like, yeah, it's just a very weird debate. Um, yeah, just as an aside. But, um, but now I think people are changing that a little now that Trump is in charge of the development of the COVID vaccine, you know? Yeah. So... I mean, I hope that leads people to see why, you know, to start having a little empathy for the perspective that it's not about distrusting the concept of vaccination, which I think is like an ingenious concept. Um, taking like inert viruses or fragments and getting the body to react against them. Um, great idea in general, but like just needs really rigorous testing and especially the ones like for example that anthrax vaccine or Gardasil where we're not talking about like eradicating polio we're talking about something that like very that slightly changes your cancer risk I mean there are so many things that we allow that fucking up your cancer risk a shit ton like eating 
um, meats with like phthalates or, uh, you know, smoking, um, or yeah, or drinking, um, or fucking exposure to pesticides and radiation. But, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I guess, yeah, that, you know, as a, like, sad, funny uh, side note, I think, like, because I had such bad ADD in college, I got the first installment of the HP vaccine, um, HPV vaccine three times. It, like, I, you know how you get have to get, like, one, and then you get six months later, like, the second one? And I don't know if there's a third one. Yeah. Anyway, I kept missing the deadline. Like, I got the first one, and then I waited, like, seven months, and I was like, oh, fuck. And then I went back and got the first one again. <laughs> I did this, like, three times at my college health center. I mean, they just, like, really guilt-tripped me into getting it. They are like, you're going to give people cervical cancer. Anyway, um, and then I didn't even, like, manage to finish this series. I don't know if that affected my health. Um, I got I got the first installment twice, I think, and I never finished getting it. <laughs> yeah. I read, this is just a weird coincidence, but on the same topic of, like, MKUltra, there was a famous artist, and he was drugged with LSD in Paris, and he never recovered he was never the same after he took it and never did art again like it changed his whole life and kind of ruined his whole career and it's because i believe it was hpv they said that they wanted to test if it if uh hpv made you have a really bad reaction to lsd and they confirmed it which is just like an interesting side note on Weird. the same topic. But doesn't like almost everyone have HPV? It's like EBV Maybe it's or hepatitis. Okay, that would make more sense because like that, okay. it, yeah, affects the, it affects the liver like really intensely. HPV is something that like almost everyone has, but not everyone if you haven't been sexually active. So it's like that's when they guilt trip you into it when you're like young they're like you're going to like destroy the lives of your future partners anyway um well then sorry, that's not even related to the topic but i just that's interesting yeah um i would definitely not take lsd if i had hepatitis um yeah i haven't tripped since i've been chronically ill because I have no issue with psychedelics. In fact, I like them. I like them a lot more than weed. Um, but, you know, my body's just too frail for tripping. Um, it literally takes energy to trip, and I don't have it. Um, but, like, the amount of people who are like, just do DMT so that you're not sick anymore because it's psychosomatic was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like I got sick with Lyme in um uh twenty sixteen. 
and I had no idea what like chronic Lyme or like whatever or MECFS was. All I knew is that I got it and then I took the standard course of like antibiotics and I didn't really ever fully recover. Like I initially felt better after that, but then the symptoms like all came back. I went to doctor after doctor and it just like the long story short is that most of them didn't know shit. I found some MECFS specialists that knew a little bit more, but mostly I had to do my own research. I eventually got diagnosed with after three years and after becoming bedridden and having severe neurological issues and neck pain, got diagnosed with craniocervical instability, which literally meant that somehow um, the ligaments in my neck had become lax, my skull was sinking down and compressing my fucking brainstem, which is really serious. And it shows up on an MRI, which was somewhat vindicating considering that like so many people had considered me hysterics because I didn't have a single clear blood test that showed I was really sick, even though I was obviously really sick. But so that's something that really mostly needs to be treated surgically for now until they figure out like ways to regenerate ligaments. But the weird thing about that is that most people either have that when they have whiplash from like a head injury or when they have um, a genetic connective tissue disorder. And I had neither of those. But a few other people like me had had this experience. So we started to realize that there's this growing cohort of people who are getting like cervical spine ligaments really damaged by either infections or inflammation from environmental toxins or both. Um, in my case, I think both. And to the extent where like it's almost like arthritis level and a lot of these people are very young and having to have surgery from this. Like literally, it's like a toxin that's not just incapacitating them in the moment, but their ligaments are degrading to the point where they have to have surgery. And um, that's that, but lo long story short, there, that's that part of how I came to become really sick and what I think is behind it. And then I talked to this guy, Eric, who I mentioned earlier, um, survivor of the Lake Tahoe outbreak, which is like the, the CDC invented the term chronic fatigue syndrome, which is really a bad term for the illness, but they invented it based on that outbreak. And there are a few others, like one in Lindenville, New York, one in, uh, I think, LA County, but it was mostly that one that was like the prototype for their syndrome which they mostly thought was hysteria, but they reluctantly like wrote up something about it. Um, anyway, so he's a survivor of that outbreak. Like I said, he had military experience, chemical uh, weapons training, like I think defensive chemical weapons training, I, um, uh, like, and he, realized that everyone was chasing viruses. Everyone was like trying these experimental cures from doctors in Tahoe, but nobody was paying attention to these environmental clues, like I said earlier. So he mapped out the zones in Tahoe where he felt bad. Um, and he started uh, going further afield with this. He got to the point where he 
did exactly what they do in the military for decontaminating from CS gas or mustard gas. Like, um, most people who like deal with mold or I use scare quotes with mold because I think it's like a flurry of mold and industrial particulates or whatever, you know, um, most people who deal with that don't go this far, but he was thinking that this military training might be useful because this stuff might be more toxic than people thought because they were obviously really disabled by it. So he didn't just move out of a moldy house. He started, you know, when he had an exposure, uh, washing off really thoroughly immediately, uh, taking his clothes off or throwing his clothes out that were in that exposure. And then he started going to really like remote wilderness places. Like um, since he was in Tahoe, he went to like the desert in central Nevada or sometimes like the wilderness way out of the town um, and built like an all metal camper with no real mold food, no wood, no drywall, metal and foam insulation, just and um with a shower as a way that he could like have a mobile environment that essentially was easy to decontaminate it you could like power wash the walls unlike like a regular car or house or you could even blowtorch them to denature the mold toxins and so he just like got really far by treating that stuff like it was like a military grade toxin which I think in some ways it sort of was. Um, so that's the practical side of his method. But then he tried to figure out after he recovered doing that, well, it, he spent the rest of his life trying to get researchers to look into this and trying to construct a theory about how something as seemingly innocuous as mold could be that bad and seemingly getting worse. Like these illnesses were proliferating. He hadn't heard of uh, similar cases in the 1900s where, you know, there were mold toxins so bad that people had to like throw out their belongings that had been in the house, not just like get out of it. Like, um, so he constructed the theory that, like I said, nanoparticles were aggregating on mold spores and being adsorbed onto mycotoxins and cyanotoxins. So biotoxins were sort of combining with industrial pollution to become really nasty. Part of the impetus for that was that in Tahoe, around that time, this isn't like really a conspiracy theory at all. I mean, or that secret, um, ski areas were doing illegal cloud seeding with nanoparticle metals um, just to boost the amount of snow that they got, the amount of precipitation. And also, at the same time, there was this major solvent spill in the sewers that was sort of covered up. And so from that, developed the idea that Mold could combine with metal nanoparticles, but also that this solvent could have altered the microbiome sort of permanently because there was 
kind of really nasty pox plumes of stuff coming out of the sewers and um he made a kind of epidemiological map of the severe severity of like illness based on where people lived in Tahoe and it like fit with like the sewer plumes and bad buildings known bad buildings um so all of that and I just wanted to briefly theorize that and say that you know I think it relates to like the military industrial stuff even though it may not have been an actual deliberately released biotoxin because all of this stuff is sort of both the way he figured out is a bioproduct a byproduct of you know knowing about military industrial toxins and secondarily that it's um all of these kind of things like uh the cloud seeding the solvent use which was i think used a lot in tech like tce is a byproduct of like the military industrial complex and their kind of attitude towards uh not caring about civilian sicknesses and also just like um experimenting at the expense of um the earth the people the flora and fauna um yeah so I, that specific historical event the tahoe outbreak and similar ones are i think additional things um food for thought in addition to Lyme and in addition to COVID. Yeah. And I think the one final thing I want to end on is that, yeah, we don't study nanoparticle pollution basically at all, like I said before. And it's probably way more important than PM 2.5. And we also don't understand, we don't study biotoxins like cyanobacteriotoxins or mold toxins in a really detailed way. Um, and in relation to these outbreaks and these illnesses, which are basically, makes sense because they're basically not of mo importance to most people yet. But I will say, these chronic illnesses are growing and with COVID-19 also causing all this like long-term sequelae that are very similar to MECFS and chronic Lyme, I think that might change. I don't wanna, that's my non-doomer little hopeful thing for the end that I hope that when people start getting chronically ill from this, they'll reflect and they'll have some level of solidarity yeah and i definitely think that uh i mean like the environment it's not not getting any better and it's definitely like uh almost like a perfect storm of like everything terrible because there's toxic plumes in the groundwater and there's nanoparticles and like i didn't even think about that but i think i've 
I've read about those, but I really don't know much about them at all and what they can do. And yeah, we could do a whole other episode about the Bay Area super funds and what that means oh. for those. Yeah, which is, I think, why the Bay Area is why everyone there is depressed and why it's such a cursed place. But yeah. All right. Well, I'll let you um, get to sleep. And it was really fun talking to you. Um, yeah. Really informative. And um, maybe in the future. Um, yeah. Yeah, let me know, definitely. And thanks for letting me come on your podcast. All right. Good night and good luck. Good night. Thanks. Blue